0: everyone. As I was watching um, people begin to come on, it, it's, it's kind of interesting because I can see up top when people want to, when they're in the waiting room, and it starts out slow, and then suddenly it speeds up, and people, people start arriving like, it's, it's almost like rushing the door or something. But the thought I had as I was watching is I, I realized just sitting here, uh, seeing your faces, and which is always lovely is that this starts days before uh, because when I'm checking inside to see what what do I want to bring, I'm not just thinking this way i'm th- I'm thinking about you like what what would be useful so you're actually with me and th- and then you show up. <laughs> And then you're in me because we've been together and then I carry you forward. And so there's very little time when I'm actually not not with you in a certain way. I, I'd, never, I'd never thought about it that way exactly. But it has something to do with um, what I will speak about a little bit today and I hope we can speak with, about together. So let's begin sitting together. As we share these few minutes of stillness and silence and a very soft and kind of reflective presence. I can feel an echo in my own heart from last week. the echo of the threshold at which I'm now standing. As we sit, we may notice the edge, state, the threshold at which, which you're standing and sitting, walking. I hear the echo of those questions. Is there something that wants to be released? Or something I'm about to step back from? Is there a new arrival, something to say yes to? a new entry point in my life. You needn't think too much or worry about these, they're just echoes. You may feel a little barrier or inhibition of crossing a threshold. Wondering what gifts are needed to sustain you on your way. Each period of sitting is a a settling to see where we are arriving and what is arriving. And maybe you have that faint echo from last week's question, who am I without you? I feel this very powerfully as I have this insight today of how you arrive days before this formal meeting, and how I carry you with me. And the inside of that question, who am I when I no longer identify with my own stories? Just gentle echoes like the bell. A bell ringing in the distance or fading away. Sitting to feel the rhythm of your own life. And the lives around you. I would invite us this morning, or this afternoon, evening, whatever, um, to invoke the four practice principles in the beginning today. So let's let's enjoy that now. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. holding to self-centered thoughts exactly the dream each moment life as it is the only teacher being just this moment compassion's way You know, as I was feeling and reflecting on those, those kinds of echoes uh, from last week and how they've carried me through this week, the, the one question that really re- remained um, was, and I don't mean just in a general way, but I'll speak about it in a, in a larger way in a moment. The question is, what, what do we need most right now? What do we need most? And I, and what kept um, sort of coming in the peripheral vision of my, of my heart and mind and body, uh, the word compassion kept coming in. It's a common thing that we think about, but, um, and that's why I thought it would be important to invoke the four practice principles right away about compassion's way, how each moment offers us a teaching, how holding to self-concern keeps the cycle of suffering going. And and then a very, uh, this is a little bit humorous, but as I kept just uh, allowing to come what was going to come, which is kind of the way I work and how, how I decide what to speak about, what's moving in me as often happens, um, there was a song that popped into my head and I'm not gonna play it because I got in trouble with Adele last time, you know. (laughs) Um, With the song, I I thought, what do we need right now? What does the world need? What the world needs now? And you know the next line, right? Is love sweet love? Because those of you that are old enough to remember the old Burt Baccarat song, the, the words by Hell David it was written in 1965. Um, and I, I looked it up, by the way, Dionne Warwick was offered the song and she turned it down because she thought it was too preachy. And then it was originally recorded by Jackie DeShannon in 1966. Then Dionne Warwick recorded it in 1967. So a little bit of musical history. And so I looked up the lyrics because, I mean, so many of us know it and we've heard John Warwick especially sing it many times. And I realized it was a song about the Bodhisattva vow. And I'm not going to just speak about this today, but I think it's curious. So in the first verse, it says, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love what the world needs now is love sweet not just for some but for everyone so there's the bodhisattva vow what's needed is kindness compassion care for for everyone for all beings and then there's diverse the refrain it comes back next verse lord we don't need another mountain there are mountains and hillsides enough to climb you know plenty of dharma gates right each moment life as it is (laughs) the only teacher there are oceans and rivers enough to cross enough to last till the end of time, the opportunities to awaken don't ever end. We have them available. It's the Dharma is very clear and very consistent. it will always be with us each moment, life as it is. And then in the final verse, after another recitation of the, uh, what's in the middle, it says, uh, Lord, we don't need another meadow. There are cornfields and wheat fields enough to grow. There are sunbeams and moonbeams enough to shine. Oh, listen, Lord, if you want to know. And it goes back into the verse. So in other words, nothing is missing. Nothing is hidden. There are plenty of meadows. There's enough to grow. There's enough to shine. Everything is here in that phrase I love from Mark Nepo's poem, in flawed abundance. Everything is here. And then as I I listened to the song at the end, I thought, oh, um, this is about... Offering what is most needed. But there's more. That offering what is most needed, compassion and love, is actually what is most needed. It's the offering. Offering what is most needed is actually what is most needed. So that was just kind of a a fun entryway into um my thinking and and by the way i know that as you listen to these reflections early in inquiry you're actually hearing me in inquiry with myself this is the way these things move in, in me um, the way the practice is moving in me and i and i thought also of the of the wonderful uh, TED Talk that Karen Armstrong did in 2008 uh, about, um, uh, it was really about the kind of the golden rule, but uh, in February of 2008, she, um, Karen Armstrong was awarded um, the TED Prize. And what that is, is that someone during the year of the, the major TED Talks is chosen as something that's most significant And um, she was given a a platform, uh, $100,000 to fund whatever she thought was most important. And so she developed, which some of you now know, uh, is a a worldwide um, platform called the Charter of Compassion. So this is a big offering, the Charter for Compassion um here's just a tiny bit from the um the text from that charter and i only read it because it's a nice echo once again of of our work and the charter and it's different language than we often use but but listen to the echo the principle of compassion lies at the heart of all religious ethical and spiritual traditions calling us calling us always to treat all others as we wish to be treated ourselves. Compassion impels us to work tirelessly, to alleviate the suffering of our fellow creatures, to, I love this, to dethrone ourselves from the center of our world and put another there and to honor the inviolable sanctity of every single human being, treating everybody without exception, with absolute justice, equality, and respect not just for some, but for everyone. And then later in the charter, towards the end, uh, she, she wrote, we urgently need to make compassion a clear, luminous, and dynamic force in our polarized world. That sentence would be enough. We urgently need to make compassion a clear, luminous, and dynamic force in our polarized world. And right at the end, it says, born of our deep interdependence, Foundational Buddhist concept. Compassion is essential to human relationships and to a fulfilled humanity. It is the path to enlightenment. It doesn't say it's the fruit, it's the path to enlightenment and indispensable to the creation of a just economy and a peaceful global community. So this is like the big picture. And it's, it resonates with things that we know and that we practice but i think it's always useful to come back to definitions and say okay we're talking about this great thing but now what is compassion was it really so the word compassion literally means to suffer with or together and it's usually defined as a spirit or a feeling or, or something that arises when we're when we meet another's suffering and we're motivated to relieve it. It's not just the meeting of it. So it's not the same as empathy or even altruism, though they're, they're related. You know, empathy is to feel the other's pain. Compassion is to take action, to relieve it. Altruism is that sense of, um, uh, operating on, th- on the welfare of another, certainly but the definition that i like in practice because that's foundational what i what i just said is compassion in its a lively form in it's a living uh, energetic form is to meet suffering and to not turn away because our practice is to always turn toward what's unfolding in the present and that takes some some courage, some willingness, As we, when we sit in periods of zazen, for example, we're asked not to speak or to move too much, and we're just maintaining some stillness and presence. Uh, and, of course, everything comes, and so it's a compassionate action in your body. It's a bodily expression of compassion to continue to meet, not to, um, to take on things as a burden or be masochistic at all, but, just, but to meet things including all the parts of us which are unable or unwilling to meet things in the present. As we turn toward all of that too, there's always something which requires our kind attention, our loving presence. And to stay with yourself and others and the situation in a wise way, not an unwholesome way, knowing when boundaries are needed and when it's useful to step back. Because sometimes turning away, I don't mean rejecting, knowing when it's wise to step away because you have compassionately witnessed, because you've actually met the situation and knowing, oh, this is not wholesome, it's not good for me. So compassion in this way to meet suffering and not turn away is the engagement of the motivation to relieve suffering, to do something, to do something based on wise witnessing and spacious intimacy. It's not just a feeling. And there's also, I think, woven into that, a willingness. um, One has to be willing to change what you're doing if you see that your impact doesn't match your intention. Oh, I was just being compassionate and someone feels differently. You have to pay attention there. So there's, there's a lot in this, I know. But I wanted to reflect on on some of these definitional things too. And by the way, just a word from our sponsor. We're, uh, starting on Thursday, there's going to be a retreat at Appamata offered as an integrated online retreat on training and compassion and uh joel barna and todd bankler two of our our teachers in austin are going to be leading this hybrid retreat so you can you can check that out on the uh, upcoming events on the Appamata, um website if you like <clears throat> they're going to be using the um, lojong phrases uh and norman fisher's book probably is a text training and compassion i would highly recommend it if you want to go further um, in this and i'll mention maybe just one one thing um and hopefully they won't be upset that i took this piece of it because we can repeat it often of the 59 uh slogans which are used in the in the lojong practices that were developed by atisha in the 10th century and then taken primarily into the Buddhist uh, tradition in Tibet, <clears throat> the first of the slogans is "Train in the preliminaries." Train in the preliminaries, and Fisher Dormer Fisher talks about this. And you can think about it in three ways. Here are the three ways. One, and this is really just an an echo of some of what I've just said, the preliminaries include everything challenging that's happened in your life at the moment when you start practicing. In other words, you use everything that's been a challenge, every bit of suffering, every difficulty, each moment, life as it's been, (laughs) that's what you train in the preliminaries. And the difference between just suffering these things, is like, oh man, it was bad, just suffering them, or trying to cope, versus training, this is a crucial thing. Training and compassion has to do with how you view these events and these circumstances. As well as your sense of resolve and your personal responsibility to meet them and use them as the ground for transformation to open your heart, to soften your heart, both to yourself and to others. And this kind of training is very different than, um, I guess what I call using IFS language manager practices, where you're just trying to be more compassionate. Compassion is natural. It comes forward when the barriers that we sometimes carry as protections begin to soften a little bit. When we're no longer caught in too much self-concern. Uh, Norman says, rather than complaining or sliding into a victim position and feeling sorry for yourself, recognize that regardless of what has happened or why, this is your life and you're the one equipped to handle it. (laughs) It's kind of a, so it's, it's a, it's a practice of maturing. We live, this is a threshold question. Am I committed to taking good care of myself? facing my life no matter what happens it's not like i'll do this practice except if and then you have your list like no no matter what happens i'll be responsible for my life and i'll take care of my life so that's one way to look at training the preliminaries use what you have use your whole life keep turning toward it and be responsible for it second begin a steady Zazen practice, meditation practice. Without that, you're not training. You're thinking about things or maybe doing some psychological work, which is useful, but it's not training. And Zazen and deep meditation helps us soften some of those barriers to the natural expression of compassion, which is is innate. And then the third way is And Atisha has this, to reflect on the four key points. The four key points. This is a whole other talk, but I'll mention them. Reflect on the rarity and precious of a human life. The inevitability of death. The awesome and indelible power of our actions, karma. And the inescapability of suffering, dukkha. We have a precious life it will end. What you do makes a difference. And while you're doing it, there'll be some dissatisfaction. And that's not a problem. That's the way it goes. So this is the first point training in the preliminaries. There are many more. So back to my original question, what does the world need? What do we need right now? Well, love, sweet love, but compassion that willingness to meet suffering and not turn away. And to train in a wise and wholesome compassion, not just a, a sympathetic, um, empathic way of being overwhelmed with suffering, but a wise and wholesome compassion because it's grounded in practice, then expressed as our everyday life for the benefit of other being, real people. And as I was writing some notes and thinking about how to express this um, and to remind us here early in the year, this is what we need most, you know. I was speaking to um, one of my students at an individual inquiry session, um, and I've been given permission to, to say this. Um, some of you in the midwest know sasha kuznetsov who is the principal of a middle school can you imagine a more terrible job the principal of these middle school kids i say that because it's like oh my god this is a hidden oaks middle school just outside of minneapolis uh, sasha was actually born in, in russia uh, came with his wife here and uh, He's lived here for 30 years, I believe, or more. He's a marvelous man. And I was meeting with him, and we really look at how practice his practice is expressed and reflected in his being a principal in this school. And he told me a story. And I thought, this is an example. This is the example of exactly what we're talking about here. And so I said, would you mind writing it down just so I don't get it wrong? Um, And he was still in the middle of school. He said, well, later when I get home, but because of our time difference, it worked, you know. Here's what he wrote. And I I couldn't get it out of my head and my heart. He said, about two months ago, I offered an opportunity to seven eighth grade boys. If they wanted to stay after school with me every Friday, Friday at the end of the week, we would do a 25 minute workout together directed by me and i get to choose the songs and then following that they play basketball and shoot hoops for another 25 minutes and they get to choose the songs but i will play it on the loudspeaker so these seven boys he said are perceived at school as the disperceived as the troublemakers because they're always struggling to manage their way in school with the established rules and boundaries. He said, I didn't put any conditions on their participation. They could participate or they they didn't have to. They didn't have to earn it or act in a certain way while they're in school in order to do it. And they started showing up. A month later, they asked if two more boys could join. And he said a week ago, three more boys Asked to join as well. So he said, we're now up to 10 eighth graders and two seventh graders. Now that we have a relationship built, I randomly ask, make requests of them at school regarding their way of being while in their classrooms or in the hallway. One area that's particularly hard, he said, for them is the 30 minutes while seated in the lunchroom on these small and uncomfortable stools that are uh, you know, attached to the table. It's kind of like in prison, you know? So lunchtime is tough and often leads to them wandering in and out of the cafeteria and making poor choices while trying to entertain themselves. <clears throat> now, once they're done eating, which usually only takes about five or 10 minutes, I take them for an additional 15 minutes into the gym so we can shoot hoops together. And now when we pass in the hallway, they'll stop me and ask, are we gonna get to do the workout and play basketball on Friday? It's almost like our secret club and only they get to belong to it. And it makes me smile, he said, when they remember to ask me. And then they decide to stay after school on Friday when they could leave for the weekend. These are boys who rarely remember to c- come to school, prepared for anything. This is compassionate action. This is someone seeing a source of suffering and responding in a way that's wholesome, that makes a difference and then calls forward something in a maturing way for these boys that they wouldn't have otherwise. And here's a, a principal who's tired and has many, many responsibilities staying on Friday afternoon, uh, because it's what's needed. What's needed most in the world? Compassion, that's kind of love. So are you practicing In some way, it may not be in this this way. You you may think of a time when you offered yourself in such a way that your small self was kind of in abeyance and your true nature manifested most freely. What can you offer the world? What do you actually offer freely? And what do you hold back? Do you practice this kind of forbearance or tolerance that Sasha's talking about? What is your edge of patience? When are you most generous and spacious? And when do you notice you contract? All of it's useful. What are the blind spots? When do we engage kind of compulsively without being attentive? When do we lose focus? What helps us sustain our focus and commitment, clear seeing? And not just where are we blind, where are we brilliant? And can you even admit your brilliance? So these are real questions. And if you have some that would help you open open your heart and open your actions, then Let's speak about them. I, okay.
1: Um, I was very touched by Sasha's story, and what uh, what I was noticing in your your question for for us for me uh, is uh, like what I don't accept. You know what I struggle with is anything that challenges my belief that I am welcome or that I am accepted. Like when love comes towards me, I I move back, but I offer love a lot. But if love comes towards me I'm like, Um,
0: Like that last question, can you actually accept your brilliance? You can accept your limitations.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. See, I don't even consider that.
0: You know, after last week, when you came forward, several people have said, I love it when Cassie comes forward because it touches me so deeply and then it calls me.
1: I was feeling greedy. I was just like, oh, I shouldn't raise my hand because I like raised my hand last week. So thank you.
0: But but I want you to hear that it's your vulnerable heart that calls people forward. Hmm. Yes, you give a lot. Absolutely but what you offer with that vulnerability and your questioning and your willingness to actually meet, you know, you know, you don't show up and just tell me something or you meet what I'm actually talking about in a way that has vulnerability. And that's what this is about. And, and people can feel it and then they're drawn to it. Mm -hmm. So you're doing, you're enacting what we're inviting. And and without knowing it, you're teaching. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, yeah. Without realizing it, you're loved.
1: Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> um. Yeah. I just uh, I so enjoy the moments where like transforming the idea of an aggressor or a protector into an invitation. You know, that has just really, really, really continued to just, you know, weave around in there. So uh, I I adore these opportunities.
0: That's a really important threshold to self-compassion too. Because it turns what you would normally fight into something that you would meet. And so there's compassion we think about for others, but for all beings, that means I'm included.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's self-compassion. So for example, when I say an essential part of our vow is I will take care of myself and not abandon myself, no matter what happens. And people say, well, that sounds self-centered. You're just going to take care of yourself. Like, But what precedes that or is underneath it is the realization that we're all connected, and there's no independently existing self. Therefore, when I take care of this, I'm taking care of this, and when I take care of this, I'm taking care of that. It's all one thing. It isn't self-centered.
1: So I'm immediately judging that I don't take care of of this.
0: Sometimes even you don't
1: That's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And
0: so you feel wholesome regret. That's important to, to feel the ouch of, I don't really take care of myself as well as I could, but that realization is the, is the springing up of bodhicitta, of wanting to find that space of love. That's that place where bodhicitta, the, the, the hope that others be free, the hope that I be free of suffering, starts to flow. Now you can turn it into self-criticism. So if one of those yeah, parts yeah. grabs it, you could go that direction. But but here's here's the here's the threshold precisely what you're saying when you can turn what looks like a difficulty into an opportunity. That's practice. Yeah. You're right on it. Thanks I was talking about this in a group the other day and somebody was asking me about uh, how you start bodhicitta flowing. And we were using examples like you just given us. And I said, you know, the first time I heard about this, I didn't understand it. And I was listening to a Tibetan teacher talk, and he said, um, when he was young in the monastery, he didn't understand this absolute bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta. And they said, when you're going to do lojong, uh, these, um, what's it called, Tonglin practices, you want to start relative bodhicitta first, you know, the really heart centered, embodied stuff before you can go to the big stuff. And so, he he was trying to decide how he could do that and so one day he was walking up on the there's a walkway we could do walking meditation on the roof of the monastery and this is in tibet and so he could see down in the village and one day he saw a bunch of kids really being mean to a little dog it's like oh yeah see and suddenly his heart broke open And he realized, oh, that's it. All I have to do is thinking about the suffering of another being and how things are difficult. This was a particularly uh, contracting little place, of course. Uh, but that's uh, all you have to do is come to inquiry and listen to someone speak, or think about yourself, and you can and your heart begins to open, and that energy begins to flow. And now, now there's a place to move. So You've done that for us today. Thank you. If you put yourself on gallery view for a minute, if you're not. Um, <clears throat> and here and you can see at least one page There's a bunch of people. If you felt that kind of relative bodhicitta that kind of compassion began to move by listening and watching cassie just raise your hand anybody oh there you go i just want you to see that cass it's true Looks like susan's coming too and mary beth's whoever's who first here there we go so I
2: actually raised my hand. Hi, Flint.
0: You did. Did you think you didn't? <laughs> did you raise your hand virtually? <laughs> I was
2: thinking about it.
0: <laughs> well, here you are. Apparently you did.
2: I know. I'm actually really nervous about coming up. I'm always nervous about this kind of thing. But
0: sure, sure. Um, there's a lot of energy in it.
2: Yeah, I have a situation that um really I'm struggling with exactly this question about, you know. What's the nature of my compassion? What are the personal boundaries? Um, Does it matter that there's a separation between actions and the way um, and my feelings of maybe judgment or views of the situation? To give a little more specifics, this involves uh, my sister, and I won't give a lot of details, but um, she's... Um, I, I really even hate to give any details, but... Okay. Um, <laughs>
0: a, family, a family struggle.
2: I've been called on to um, help her out with some things because she's in the hospital, and which involves um, going into her apartment. She's got a very filthy apartment. And so I have a lot of, and it's um, partly it's, um, she's got a disability. It's partly a result of years of really bad habits on her part. And so I struggle with disgust. At the same time, I recognize the needs. And I'm causing myself a lot of suffering (laughs) around this. I actually talked about it, at the Sunday service. Ah, good. I just kind of feel stuck. I kind of feel like, all right, I can, I kind of know what to do and I'll do it, but I've just got all this baggage around
0: it. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're doing the most wholesome thing you can right now, which is you spoke about it with your friends at Appamata.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You're bringing it here. So you're saying, here's a dilemma that I'm not sure exactly how it's going to go. Or I have an idea, but it's not going very smoothly in my heart right now. And I don't want to have to walk alone. I don't have to carry it alone. That's the first and most important thing you can do. None of us know what the right thing is.
2: Hmm.
0: And none of us know how it will go. But we can be committed to being with you while you do it or don't do it and then something else will happen you'll get some feedback you'll take some steps you may take some steps back from it you may go a little more you may take another route Uh, we don't know I don't know the right answer but for you to be willing to avow to say this is the situation to let others hear you and care for you Uh, because if I did what I did after Cassie and I opened up and I said who you know, who's with Susan or who's ever had something like this with a family member. You, you see those hands when you, you know that.
2: It, it feels pretty extreme to me, <laughs> but may
0: yeah, maybe, absolutely. I'm
2: sure I'm not alone too. You know, um,
0: and sometimes uh, those of us who have attempted to do our best to maintain a wholesome and balanced and mature and decent enough life, you know, are met by people that come to us when they haven't done a really long time. They've not taken good care of themselves. And the consequences are dire and painful and repugnant even.
2: Yeah.
0: And then we're like, oh man.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't wanna go down with that ship, but I also don't wanna turn my back on it.
2: And that's it exactly. That's, that's it. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. There are moments when, there's a friend or a family member that you know that they have a lifetime of a certain way of living and they're saying well if you could just give me this then you realize you could funnel every bit of your finances and every bit of your life into it and it would go down the hole and nothing and it's hard but but you think well but i don't want to do nothing right so then you you have to come and maybe with counsel with others certainly you have to come to a place and saying this is what i can do i'm a limited human being who has to be as compassionate to myself as the other uh, to, to do this would take me down i don't want to be taken down
2: right that's right <laughs> but, I, but
0: i can respond in this and that's in my limited ways all i can do and only you can know what that is of course
2: and maybe that's enough. I mean, maybe it's like the the it action itself, even if it's surrounded by all this, ooh or whatever, that's just the way it's going to be for yes. now. For now. Yeah.
0: But to um, know that you're limited and know that you can't fix or heal all of this right. and nothing you can do on the outside would um, shift a lifetime. Right of what's often destructive behaviors. But, uh, so you may not bring her totally into your life in that way and, and but you can always keep her in your heart but you have to keep yourself in your heart too, in your own family.
2: So um, just work out this balance as I go between keeping us both in my heart.
0: Yeah, and, and- know what your boundaries are about what you can actually offer. And yeah. nobody else can tell you what that is. But you can talk about it like this and get support and love from others as you do it.
2: Yeah.
0: It's really hard, I know.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that take helps.
0: Great, take us with you. Okay. Okay. Hi,
3: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm doing well. I'm happy to see you.
3: Thank you. It's so um, very interesting, your talk today, because I was just reading in the book.
0: But yeah, there's morning. the book.
3: Yeah. Show that, show that
0: again so those who don't know it can see. There you go. Good. Uh-huh.
3: You know, I and it's interesting because I have the awareness of what you're talking about, right? Like, the awareness of people or situations that are suffering right and i have the desire right to work with the practice principles right and to just to be really um skillful in needing what is needed in a very compassionate way when there is suffering i have it right
0: that's um, not for you. You got all that down.
3: I got all it down. I got all that down. Where, you know, I struggle is the ability to be skillful. And then the resistance I have, because I don't feel like I have the ability to be skillful in meeting suffering. I don't, I, I don't know if I have a question. I just wanted to put it out there that it's it's something I practice with. And, and, and you know, this morning I pulled this book out because I was like, oh, I'm going to find an answer in the book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we long for it, don't we?
3: <laughs> you know, and turn compassion into the path. And I'm like, and, and a lot of times I practice with people at work who are suffering um, in the business world, not in a clinical way. Um, and it causes suffering for me. I just wanted to say that. I just want to come up here and say, I I wish I was better at it and I'm working at it, and I, if well, you have the any tips,
0: that's the aspiration, you have that's the aspiration.
3: aspiration,
0: to be skillful, uh, early on, especially for years, early on in my uh, training, and practice as a psychotherapist, I had this aspiration to be a really good therapist, I want to be a really good therapist, I get, I was around people that I admired, and saw, and I realized after a while it was a barrier. Then I decided just to be a therapist.
3: Hmm. I mean, and, I could decide to just be a human. I mean, when you said that, I was like, oh, well, I could just be a human and not have to save everyone.
0: Yes, that's my point. Yeah. Is that something you add on the top, of course, there's an aspiration. That's our vow. In fact, hmm. at the end of today, You know, we did the four practice principles in the beginning. I'm going to screen share the bodhisattva vows and we're going to recite them at the end. And, you know, they're kind of like, whoa, but all we can be is who we are.
3: Yeah. That shifted something in me for sure.
0: Yeah. Just like Susan, it's like, I thought all we can do offers what we can offer. Um, And one of the, one of the amazing things about human beings is we have this imaginative intelligence and creativity so we can imagine stuff we can't do we can imagine how it could go and that's beautiful but but it's a double-edged sword
1: mm-hmm.
0: because it also sometimes that we think we should in a certain way in an unwholesome way we can we can feel like we're constantly failing
3: yeah that hit me too yep
0: Do what you can, in a limited, stumbly, bumbly way. Make your mistakes, but maintain the intention of offering. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Okay. I'm glad I came up because there's a softening that I'm feeling. Maybe I'm embodying it a little bit more, and in instead of up here.
0: That's what we want. If you can feel it in your body, you know, it's actually landing.
3: Yeah. So thank you.
0: Thank you for coming forward because it, you're each person, you, you're all showing something essential for everybody, you know, and taking it deeper. Thanks. This This is an edge I face every single week. I think, okay, I'm going to offer something for inquiry or a Dharma talk or a presentation. Um, And of course, I want it to be useful. But I can really tie myself up if I think it has to be good or better than last time or whatever ideas I get. Uh, But it's performative instead of wholehearted. This is not a performance. I'm opening my my heart, my body, my mind, my life, and offering what I have to offer. And it will be what it is. When I was working this past week with um, with Laura, you know, who was here last week, and we were talking, we were working on um, a lot of <laughs> Hour after hour of interviews and questions that young people had brought. The the day before we began, um, I had terrible anxiety, I didn't sleep well. And the voice that came, the part that arose was, Who do you think you are? Like you give advice to people and you have somebody's gonna think you're wise? That's it's crazy. And then on the other side, another voice came and said, but if you have the request of people who are struggling, you it's not appropriate to say no. And if you have something to offer, it's not appropriate to not offer it. So what goes between not being elevated, but also not withdrawing? and you say, I'll just offer what I have to offer. And it's not up to me if people think, oh, you're being whatever, you know, you're being elevated as some wise person. I don't get to choose, I don't have to deal with that. That's other people. But it is important that I not uh, withdraw and hold back. And so that that's how I felt this past week. So I'm going to screen share here. I hope it works okay with everyone. Does that come through okay? You can shake your head. Okay, good. So here's our final uh, chant today. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with it, uh, this is a classical um, recitation of the Bodhisattva vows. There are four of them. We do it three times, of course, Buddhism. (laughs) And typically it's done three times with just the first person, like the, in the beginning, beings are numberless, I vow. Um, but it's one of the sort of insights that, that we offered, that, that Peg brought forward, and we've begun to use is we, in the second recitation, we include all of us, in the third recitation, we make it universal. And realize that these, because of what we just said, these things are not things that you can actually accomplish. These are vows, which means they're endlessly orienting. They're not goals. So once again, I can talk about this more. Let's just say them together, okay? Here we go. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. Beings are numberless. We vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. We vow to end them. Dharmagates are boundless. We vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. We vow to embody it. Beings are numberless. This vow frees them all. Delusions are inexhaustible this vow ends them all dharma gates are boundless this vow enters them all and buddha's way is unsurpassable this vow embodies it and as maria comes on here in a moment she often among several things that she announces are, are things about um contributions. and I, But I wanted to say something ahead of that. Uh, you, you needn't even mention it really. Um, because of the generosity model that AppaMata has implemented, if you offer um, uh, a donation to AppaMata in general, you're not um, you're not paying for inquiry, you're not what you're doing is saying, I want to make an offering. So that these programs and the Zoom account and the computers and all the so all of that can be supported so other people can receive the teachings. This is the practice of generosity, which is a compassionate action. You're you're offering a donation so that this can continue. You may you might offer a separate donation to me as a teacher. That's true. That's Donna, this individual. Uh, But all of these, it's not transactional because it's so common, you know, in our way of thinking that these things are transactional. You're offered something, you pay for it. This isn't that. You're offered something freely. But all of this takes a bit of resources to maintain and to carry forward. So that's why we invite your contribution. And you can find a link for that on the website if you want. So um, you don't need to even say anything about it, Maria. I wanted to say that from a teacherly uh, perspective because it has to do with uh, with these things that we're talking about right now. But you probably have some other things to say, thank you.
2: It helps if I unmute, doesn't it? <laughs> thank you so much, Flint, and thank you everybody for being here today. We all support each other by coming and creating this, this shared space. And as, and as Flint said, it's apamada.org forward slash contribute. And uh, yeah, and if, if you'd like to continue to meet and share, then please do pop yourself into gallery view and we'll continue to meet for a further 30 minutes. But well, Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you again, Flint.